So the United States has two geographic parts, the places our economy and culture tell us to get out of and the places we're told to seek in order to make it. But I think there's a shift going on beneath the surface of our national story. It's a return to, or a refusal to leave, the least glamorous corners of this country. I'm talking about the small towns, rural lands, working class communities that national headlines say are dying in order to fight for the place that feels like home. I'm Sarah Smarsh, and this is The Homecomers. We continue to make improvements toward universal care. We're not there yet. I think it's a goal that is important in this country, that everyone has a right to health care. It shouldn't be determined by geography. It shouldn't be determined by income. It should be part of being an American and living in this country. U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services Kathleen Sebelius went from being a popular governor of the largely rural state of Kansas to helping craft the most sweeping federal health care legislation in modern U.S. history, the Affordable Care Act. So there was some trouble with the ACA's rollout, and at that time, Sebelius resigned from the Obama administration. That was 2014. Where did she go? Well, back to Kansas, where she was known for effectively reaching across the political aisle and where the state administration had swung far right since she left. For the past five years, she's worked for social causes from outside political office and helped elect new leaders in that state where rural concerns affect so many people. Out in the country, access to health care isn't just about money and insurance. It's about whether there's a doctor to see at all. More than 100 rural hospitals have closed since 2010, and hundreds more are in danger of closing right now. And that's a crisis felt most keenly in states that haven't accepted the ACA's Medicaid expansion for low-income people. As of mid-2019, 14 states are still refusing that deal, including Kansas, despite majority support among its residents. Secretary Sebelius joined me during the spring of 2018 from her home in Lawrence, Kansas. How would you describe the class background of your life? Well, I was raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. Both my parents had college educations. Both my grandfathers had college educations, which is somewhat unusual. And I would say we were middle to upper middle class, went to private schools. My grandfather was a very successful businessman. We lived in a very comfortable suburban neighborhood. So I was raised in an urban setting in a upper middle class family. My father decided to run for public office rather than follow his father's footsteps into business. So he really was a kind of mentor and role model in terms of public service. And he was the governor of Ohio, which also has large swatches of rural communities. So I, I was somewhat familiar with the urban 
rural divide as a child and through his eyes and experience and, and certainly some of the issues and challenges that that raised. Fast forward, I married a Kansan and came to Kansas. My husband's father, my father-in-law, was a member of the House of Representatives and then a congressman from the big first district, which yes. now is about two-thirds of Kansas, but stretches into some of the more rural areas. My husband grew up in Norton, Kansas, which is a small town in the Northwest. His experience and mine are very different, but I, I immediately became informed by his challenges I became much more familiar with challenges of rural areas, small towns, issues. That's fascinating, I think, kind of juxtaposed with where your public service ended up landing. You go from that place of Kansas to running 11 operating agencies, that's the FDA, the CDC, tens of thousands of employees around the world, a trillion-dollar operating budget. I'm curious how, how did having been a a state representative, an insurance commissioner, and of course then governor in a largely rural and agricultural state like Kansas inform your approach to leading the Department of Health and Human Services? I think all governors in some ways bring that wealth of experience. If you are in a state with urban and rural areas, you need to pay attention to both. And I think being a governor is great a training ground for any cabinet office because it's a, a sort of similar executive position where you have members of a cabinet. As a governor, I then had various department heads who functioned like members of a cabinet. We were driving toward a mission. We worked on a congressional budget cycle. So there's no question that my experience in Kansas was hugely important as a real-life trainer in getting ready, if you ever can be ready to lead, you know, one of the largest federal departments that exists in our government. Did you find that being at those tables in Washington, that place that you had been situated for so long, both by way of your personal life and more expansively your professional life, brought a different perspective to the table or did it help or create challenges? Certainly coming to Washington from a state like Kansas, I was acutely aware in the health arena, the enormous, very particular challenges that arise in rural America with costs and access. That is a constant theme that I paid a lot of attention to and then had an ability to also focus on in the department of HHS. So that experience was enormously helpful. I actually had also been for eight years an insurance commissioner. And when we had the new law passed that dealt with regulating the private insurance market and setting up uh, a new marketplace, my experience as insurance commissioner was extraordinarily helpful uh, in terms of real life practical knowledge because nobody at the federal government level had ever done that before. And I had colleagues all over the country I call on bring in higher But again, the rural-urban challenges uh, presented themselves immediately and still are a real barrier often to people getting 
the kind of coverage they need, getting access to the health services they need. Even though the law is the same, depending on where your geography is, your experience is very different. And when we're talking about achieving equity in access to care for rural areas, we're not, of course, just talking about economics, but we're talking about geographic and maybe even cultural hurdles. I wanted to read you just a few lines from an address that you gave to the National Rural Health Association in 2012. This was before the Affordable Care Act rollout. You're in a room with hundreds of rural health professionals from all 50 states, and you said, I come from a state where we have more cows than people, so I certainly understand rural. In many communities, the question is not which doctor or hospital you visit, but whether there's a doctor or facility at all. I know all too well that when a critical access hospital closes its doors or a doctor leaves town, it may actually shut down the town. Challenges about access and cost and quality have always been more acute in rural America. That has been traditionally the case about health care. You know, I was, as I say, the elected insurance commissioner in Kansas from 94 until 2002, and a large area of focus in that office at that time was always how we made sure people who lived in rural areas in Kansas had access to affordable health insurance. When I got to be governor, it was a huge focus of our efforts. I'm just wondering, as a person who was on that mission in what now seems like a a totally different time and reality for this country, what has it been like for you to watch the last few years unfold and, and just this kind of current political moment of an administration who would seek to dial back the, the progress that was made? What I find to be so troubling is that a lot of the policy initiatives by the Trump administration, first to cancel portions of the Affordable Care Act that were really designed to draw health insurers into areas where there wasn't enough competition and where monopoly markets were too expensive, draw providers into areas where they may not be as lucrative as an urban setting, but there were additional incentives, canceling out subsidies for some individuals, making it more difficult to access prescription drugs. All of those issues not only impact what has already been high barriers to health equity, high barriers to affordable health services, but actually could, in fact, undermine the economic vitality of towns and communities. And a decision in a state like Kansas to refuse, because of political ideology, refuse to expand Medicaid, ironically hurts a lot of farm families and rural communities where people are not working in a large employer area with a guaranteed health plan, but in fact buying health policies on their own and often on incomes that are pretty marginal. So a lot of political decisions by this administration and frankly by some of our Republican state office holders absolutely make no sense and undermine the economic vitality of a community. We've had three rural hospitals in Kansas close in the last three years. And in each case, the CEO of the hospital specifically cited the Kansas decision not to expand Medicaid. 
not to have available federal dollars pay for individuals who still came through the doors of those hospitals but had no finances to pay their bills, could not pay for the doctor visit, couldn't pay for their medicine. And that really was seen as the final straw that sort of broke the back of the profitability of a small community hospital. That's insane. That makes no sense. There are not only health care for individuals, but jobs that go along with those hospitals, which are no longer there in those rural communities. Last year, the National Rural Health Association estimated that a third of the 2,000 or so rural health facilities that are still kicking are on the brink of closure now. And you just highlighted all the ways, many of the ways that that is a crisis. Um, My understanding is that the rate of those closures has increased slightly since the Affordable Care Act due to a penalty for high readmission rates, which are higher for rural hospitals that serve a higher risk population. Could you speak to that a little bit and whether there are specifics of the collective efforts around that legislation that that maybe would be done differently now? Of course, you all were facing opponents from individuals to market forces at federal, state, and local levels. But in terms of just the building blocks, are, are there things that could have been done differently that you would now? Well, I actually would not change at all the penalty for preventable readmissions. What was happening, Sarah, was that one out of every five Medicare patients, older patients who was released from a hospital, was back in a hospital within 30 days. More alarming than that statistic, because that's a high readmission rate, was that most of those patients had never seen or spoken to a healthcare provider in the time that they had been out. So nobody followed up to say, did you fill your medication? How are you feeling? Are you dizzy? Are you having any problems? Often a visit from a home health nurse or a call from a provider's office was an effective intervention to try and prevent the next hospital visit. Now, some of those folks, frail, elderly, somebody in a health crisis, serious chronic illness, comes back into the hospital, and that is not counted in the sort of penalty category. Those are regarded as health crises, and that person appropriately should be back in the hospital. The ones who are seen as just a failure of follow-up are ones that, because the readmission is preventable based on some less expensive alternative, Um, which has not happened, come back in. So I think overall that still is an appropriate policy. The failure to follow up by doctors and providers, I think, is not something that should be rewarded with extra Medicare payments. On the other hand, Mm. the situation we were talking about, which again started with the Affordable Care Act, where Medicaid expansion was available to every state where the federal government paid initially 100% and then gradually a slightly smaller federal state share, but never less than 90% of the cost of a newly insured enrollee over the course of 10 years. The flip side of that in the way the law was written is the traditional payment to hospitals for uninsured patients gradually decreased over that same 10-year period of time because the law anticipated that 
all states would take advantage of Medicaid expansion. All states would have a new group of paying customers coming in, and they would not need as much funding for customers who could not pay. So the decrease that's built in as part of the formula to hospitals across the country has jeopardized their bottom line because they are no longer getting as much federal funding as they would have before the Affordable Care Act was passed for uninsured patients. Now, there is a fix to that, which is to decide that you will expand Medicaid and enroll those people in government health Mm -hmm. insurance that they're entitled to and pay the bills. So it isn't like people are out in the cold. But I would say that formula where on one hand Medicaid expansion is available and on the other hand the federal government is is decreasing their payment to states for uninsured folks, that probably has more seriously jeopardized hospitals across the country who are in states that don't take up Medicaid expansion than any other of the program aspects. So for the states that have refused the Medicaid expansion, and for those who agree with you that that is outrageous, immoral, you've used the word insane, (laughs) what is your sense about the driving force behind that for people who are trying to make sense of it? Where on the continuum between ideology and conflict of interests and nefarious private interests, what is the root of such madness? I don't think that I have seen any substantive argument that makes any sense other than just sheer political will to defy anything that the federal government might offer, particularly anything that President Obama may have put in place. There is no economic argument, and in state after state after state, they've done extensive economic studies to show not just in the healthcare arena, but the jobs in states which have expanded Medicaid, now there are 34, have increased, that the economic boon to those states goes well beyond the individuals who have access to healthcare and improves jobs in the economy. Healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, hospital administrators, and others are a thousand percent in favor of this policy and have advocated for it in states across the country. Often chambers of commerce have been at the front edge of advocating in favor of a state adopting the Medicaid expansion, largely because then a lot of the money that the state is still spending on extra health care costs could be diverted into other areas, spent on economic development, fill the potholes, spend it on schools. Since the law was fully enacted in January of 2014, I have not ever seen a substantive fact-based argument other than we just don't like this. We, we don't think that we should do anything the federal government tells us to do. We don't really care that they're about to pay 100%. We think the cost will be too much. I mean, those are the often repeated lines. I used to encourage governors in states where the legislature was dubious whether or not the federal government would actually keep their end of the bargain. Just write it in the law. If the feds don't pay their share, 
then the program ends. This is a fully funded program for 10 years. If you don't believe what Congress is saying, and I can understand that there's a level of skepticism, write it into the law. And a number of states indeed went ahead and did that. But I am, I'm four years later, I still have no idea other than just sheer political sort of meanness why any governor in this country would look at that financial bargain and say, for the lowest income working people in our state, I am going to prevent them from having affordable health care. It makes no sense. So much of what we're discussing is just woefully politicized and, as you've pointed out many times, basically playing politics with people's lives. Progress is being compromised and I, you seem like someone who could lend some wisdom to this moment, this highly polarized moment that, that we find ourselves in. Over the years, you were often lauded as the rare official with the skills to bridge the sort of divides that kind of dominate our political discourse today. When you ran for governor of Kansas in 2006, you uh, tapped the former chair of the state Republican Party who had just changed parties as your lieutenant governor. At the time, about half of registered voters in Kansas were Republican. About a quarter were registered Democrat. You won the election handily by a 16-point margin. You were a popular female Democratic governor of Kansas during the George W. Bush era. I should also mention that you are both Catholic and staunchly pro-choice. <laughs> Puzzles. It's a puzzle. It doesn't strike me as surprising. I think that a lot of us who come from places that are sort of mischaracterized with these broad strokes of red, we, we understand that on, on the ground there is a complexity and nuance that often misses the uh, news. So in these highly polarized times, for those of us who aim for some sort of progress and yet we're looking at the other side thinking they are bananas— <laughs> How the hell do we do it? Kathleen, please help us. <laughs> I do confess that I, I think Congress, particularly the House of Representatives, is uh, broken right now. Two big issues have played into that. The decision that unlimited amounts of dark money can flow into any place and nobody knows where it's coming from and nobody is accountable is corrosive to politics in general. But the gerrymandering of congressional districts on top of that has moved members of the House of Representatives further to the left if they're Democrats and further to the right if they're Republicans. And that just is not a great formula for any kind of compromise, any sort of resolve, any kind of way to work across party lines. I have never seen anything like the united, ferocious, uh, and relentless opposition to the Affordable Care Act. When the Republicans, I think, decided that, and Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, announced this very on that his number one job was to make sure that President Obama was not a second-term president. He didn't do that so well, but he did make that his uh, signature promise. I've never seen anybody do that. One would suggest in another day and age, if you had had a Democratic leader declaring 
the first year of a Republican president's term that the number one job was to make sure that Republican president was a failure, somebody would have suggested that was treason because you can't root against the president unless you root against the United States in many ways. You can campaign when the campaign is on, but to declare early in a term that anything this guy says, you're going to say the opposite, I think is um, perilously close to rooting for the United States to fail. But that's exactly what happened. And the healthcare law has become the symbol for that. But frankly, I think if the first bill passed had been a climate change law or some kind of tax bill, we probably would have seen this same thing. I mean, President Obama used to somewhat jokingly walk people through aspects of the law. Do you like the fact that insurance companies can no longer discriminate against people with pre-existing health conditions? Oh yeah, I like that. How about the fact that women can't be charged more than men? Oh yeah, I like that. Well, what about if you buy your insurance on your own, having the federal government for most people pay a portion of your costs like an employer? Oh yeah, I like that. He would say, the part of Obamacare that they don't like is Obama. Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways that was very true. So I'm looking at the current political climate and I was very encouraged by what happened in Kansas in 2016 after a terrific economic freefall based on a Republican governor's suggestion that we should slash the taxes and the sun would still come up in the morning. After days and days and days of darkness and rain, the Kansas people said, enough. You know, we don't think mm -hmm. this experiment is working and we're going to change it and began to, again, move back to the center. I think that's what we may see, Sarah, at the national level. You're seeing a tremendous amount of energy. And in part, it's just, you know, putting the country back on a path where there is a sense of common good, where people feel like we have more shared values than battles, where they really want to get to a point where we're civil again to one another, where we're not picking out our friends and neighbors and um, mocking them or arresting them or shoving them out of the country, but we're trying to figure out a way that, you know, we lift all boats. But as I've always said, you can't be a Democrat in Kansas and not be optimistic. You know, it's kind of a part <laughs> yes. of the DNA. <laughs> well said. As a member of the media, I'm always interested in the way in which places like, quote unquote, red states like Kansas are portrayed as both political monoliths and also just sort of like hopeless political wastelands. It's really frustrating to me because I, I feel like the, the sort of resistance that you're talking about seeing burgeoning at the national level, women in particular and, and marginalized people or liberal and progressive people have been fighting that fight for a long time at the state level. From your perspective, having been in the Obama administration, also a longtime governor, insurance commissioner, representative in Kansas, you know the media and it, what it gets right and wrong all too well, I'm sure. And I'm wondering how you think the news media gets framing conversations about health care in America and about rural America and its intersections. What are they getting wrong and how should those things be reframed if the purpose is to accurately convey what's happening on the ground? Part of what I hope will happen with media coverage 
is to actually get off the coast and visit and look at what's happening in other parts of the country because a lot of the coastal areas are not necessarily reflective of everything else. They are important in and of themselves, but particularly in healthcare, markets are very different. Health insurance really is a product that is about a local system of hospital doctors and pharmacists, and they operate very differently in very different parts of the country. So one health insurance plan is one health insurance plan. It is not a national health insurance plan. And I think people have to understand that. I also think any place that you go where there are fewer people and bigger territories, there are going to be enormous challenges with access. Can a hospital system survive? Can you get a doctor who's caring a gazillion dollars worth of debt to choose to practice in a less lucrative area? If so, what are the incentives? Can you get an insurance company who's likely to lose money in a rural part of the state to offer cover? I mean, it's a, it's a layer on layer on layer of challenges that are unlike anything you're going to find in a more densely populated area. And it's particularly acute in the healthcare system. So unless people know that and see that, I think it's, it's very hard to kind of write about it. I also find it probably just wrong-headed that all of the sound and fury, uh, most of the articles, a lot of the debate and discussion is about the marketplace and these 10 to 12 million people who change all the time because people move in and out of jobs that that have health insurance attached to them or, or graduate from college or move into a Medicare population because they turn 65. So that relatively small slice of America is what has been the major focus of time and attention of virtually everybody, as opposed to focusing on these extraordinary public health challenges that we have, which affect all of us and are underfunded and underattended to. And again, this administration has made a series of terrifying proposals about public health initiatives, including just slashing the CDC budget, which is the backbone of every state health department in the country, provides resources and access to kids' vaccinations and flu shots and everything else. So that we should pay a lot more attention to. And I think we pay a lot more attention to the programs that affect the vast majority of people. One out of every three Americans is currently a beneficiary of either Medicare or Medicaid. They touch more pregnant moms and kids than anybody else. If we want to improve maternal health, if we want fewer child deaths, if we want to make an impact on how seniors live their last years of life. Those are the programs that impact. And again, very little time and attention is focused on on those critical programs that offer services often at a much more efficient rate than a lot of the private sector, um, but gets less time and attention. So I'm hopeful that some of the media will get more steeped in learning about all of the various aspects of healthcare. What's really interesting to me often is 
when people hear about the marketplace or even some about Medicaid, they think it's those people talking about somebody else because I've got health care and I like it and I don't want it messed with. The costs are too high, but it's okay. And frankly, that's the way most of America is. Most Americans have health insurance of some kind or another. And most Americans are pretty satisfied. They don't like the costs, but pretty satisfied with what they have. So anything that is new is really about some other people. What I found fascinating, though, is that once the law was passed, everybody realized that in their own family, there was one of those other people. So they had a child who was under 26, and they could suddenly add to their own program because he or she was not in a job with health benefits. Or they had somebody who was an early retiree who hadn't really thought about the fact that when I leave my Ford Motor Company job, I suddenly don't have health care. And my spouse doesn't have health care because she was on the plan too, and I'm three years away from Medicare. So we're all kind of interconnected, but I think the more people focus on what's happening in real life, what it's like Mm. to try and access care, there is a common view on what we should do. So there's some real disconnect between people who are looking at healthcare through a political lens and people who are looking at healthcare through a practical lens and what happens every day in their lives. You already talked some on aspects of the current moment that give you hope, even in overwhelming times that are cause for despair, it would seem for many. You talked about the just sort of burgeoning spirit of resistance and also in 2016, the kind of um, movement toward the center in terms of even the Republican Party who made their way into office and perhaps that pretends a national trend. Um, Let's look into the future a little bit. Um, What is your hope for U.S. healthcare in, let's say, 10 years from now, um, both broadly and specifically for rural America? And what pieces would have to fall into place for that to happen? We continue to make improvements toward universal care. We're not there yet. I think it's a goal that is important in this country, that everyone has a right to health care. It shouldn't be determined by geography. It shouldn't be determined by income. It should be part of being an American and living in this country. If we look at that, one of the first areas to address is cost and access, particularly in rural America. And I think that lends itself to either a public option buy-in to the very important public programs that already operate and have large networks of doctors and hospitals in place or some kind of, you know, Medicare for all program, uh, particularly in areas where there is not enough choice and enough opportunity to get the care you need. Ironically, you you don't hear a lot from people in rural areas. You hear less, I would say, about their inability as a Medicare beneficiary to access the services they need than if they are in the private insurance market. So we've done a pretty good job establishing a network, and I'm just hopeful that we can continue the march toward universal care delivering ideally better quality care to everyone at a price that's affordable and that the government 
plays a significant role in that. I think that's one of the underlying issues. The program that operate most effectively, efficiently with the largest number of people are actually run either exclusively by the federal government or by some partnership like Medicaid between the states and the federal government. The more the private sector takes over programs, the more expensive they get and actual data indicates that the quality is questionable. So hopefully in 10 years, we will see the gaps in coverage close. We'll see more attention to costs for all of us. Everybody wants their costs to go down. But that's going to take some political will to actually look at the facts, look at the data, and try to move in that direction. Kathleen Sebelius served as U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services from 2009 to 2014 and was Governor of Kansas from 2003 to 2009. She now co-chairs the Aspen Institute Health Strategy Group. So soon after our conversation in 2018, Sebelius reemerged into the spotlight to campaign for female candidates in Kansas, including the now governor, Laura Kelly, and U.S. Representative Sharice Davids. Kelly's election, by the way, made Kansas the only state in the nation to have elected three female Democrats as governor. The Homecomers production team is audio editor Jesse Brenneman in Montana, composer Daniel Hart in California by way of Texas, web designer Tamika Pittman in New York by way of Colorado, illustrator Angie Pickman in Kansas, and communications manager Kendra Bozarth in New York by way of Kansas. I'm your host and executive producer, Sarah Smarsh in Kansas. Hey, for more episodes, Spanish translations, and info about the show, visit thehomecomers.org. And we'd love if you'd tell us your homecomer story on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Thank you to Wes Jackson, co-founder of the Land Institute in rural Kansas, for his blessing to use a term he coined, homecomers, for the title of this show. And special thanks this episode to research assistant Ida Herzog-Vito at the Harvard Kennedy School and to Kansas Public Radio in Lawrence, Kansas. The Homecomers is an independent production of Free State Media. It was created and produced with support from the Ford Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard University. Harvard University.